whatever it's worth by way of general information. Um, recently, I've put out a, a third book. Uh, the title is Tremble, and it's a, um, hmm, how would I characterize it? It was not a book that I wanted to write, and it's not a book that I particularly enjoy. But it's a book that needed to be written, and it deals with, um, oh, I suppose, different ways that you might, uh, different terminology that you might be familiar with. Uh, it deals with the issues of the emerging church within Adventism, or spiritual formation within Adventism, or contemplative prayer, or all these other different titles and things that, that uh, this, is a, this is a serious sort of an issue, sort of a, a I mean, it's, it's a very serious issue. That's why I felt I got roped into having to actually deal with it. Um, the Lord tricked me and got me into that one. I didn't really want to do it, but it was uh, a complicated story. I'll spare you the details. But I would like to make one, one uh, observation, and that is that all the problems and issues and challenges that I deal with in the book Tremble, I didn't realize it at the time that I wrote De Sozo, but De Sozo, I am convinced, and I'll touch on this tomorrow afternoon a little bit, but I am convinced that the basic ideas of De Sozo are the only possible effective response to the problems that I deal with in Tremble. They both come from the same time era, the Dr. Kellogg, the alpha of apostasy, the omega of apostasy, and all that sort of stuff. And so it, it kind of makes sense that there's a connection, but I, more and more I am convinced that, that though, you know, I'm as human as the next guy, and I'm sure I've got some things a little bit twisted and warped, in De Sozo, but the, but the basic premise of that book, I'm convinced, is the only possible effective response to the challenges that we are facing other, uh, in, the, in the other book. Let's put it that way. Anyhow, okay, but that's not our primary topic tonight. We're talking about Christian service, and I wanted to make really kind of a simple point. I, 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 um, I've never given this exact presentation before. Um, and I almost feel like I ought to apologize because it's, it's, it's very simple. And yet at the same time, I, I almost feel like I ought to apologize because, because I think it's going to be extremely pointed. And, you know, by nature, I don't like trying to tell other people what to do. You know, some people are, are really good bosses and other people just aren't. And I'm not a great boss, you know. I don't enjoy, you, go do that. That's not my, that's, that's not my thing. But there's going to be some pre-pointed stuff I'm going to say tonight. So anyhow, but I want you to notice the subtitle down here, the, the religious system aspect. There's a, there's a key point there that we'll get to, and I want to uh, just kind of alert you to, that it's coming. Okay? I remember, what was it, 1977. Um, I was reading through the testimonies for the first time. It was, again, I got tricked. The Lord, you know, the Lord just is always tricking me into things because I'm too stupid to do what I ought to. But I remember that um, a friend and I, we were discussing some fine point of theology, something together, and, and we, uh, we, we, we weren't coming up with an answer to it. I don't even remember what the question was now. But, you know, so the two of us, we went to a mutual friend, a little older, a little more experienced, a little smarter, which wasn't hard. And, and we said, you know, what do you think about this? What's the answer? And he said, you know, he says, I, 
I don't know what the answer is. I'll stop my head. He says, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I know where to find it. I, I know where you can find it. Okay, that's just almost as good. So he said, okay, so here's, here's how you need to, you know, this is what you need to do to find the answer to that. He said, get volume one of the testimonies, okay? And, and I, don't, I don't know exactly what page it's on, but get volume one and start at the beginning and just, just kind of keep reading. And, and by the time you're done with volume nine, I'm almost certain you'll have found the answer. And, um, okay. Um... Uh, just a, a few weeks later, something like that, I actually moved into this fellow's home. And so the two of us, we read through the testimonies. We, we read privately, but we compared notes as we went along. And, and I'd like to really recommend that to anyone that can possibly scrape together some time. It takes time, I know. But there's nothing like reading through the testimonies for the church. Um, it's one of the big things that got me into Advent's history because there's, I mean, it's, it's a historical presentation because she starts writing volume one, you know, and then it's volume two and volume three and whatnot. And so it, it, it does a lot to establish your concept of the, the linear flow of time and development of the church. And there's just an absolute wealth of information there that, that I would recommend. But I remember, so I was all just this little sales pitch for a good, good set of books. But when I was reading through the books the first time, I remember that in volume six, there was this one, um, what's the word I want? Pulling a blank. Um, when you put two things right next to each other, it's not conjunction, but it sounds almost like it. Um, what's the word? No, no, that's, anyhow. It'll come back to me later. But um, there, were, there were two sections back to back and they just really struck me. It just made a, a, a strong impression. The first one it comes up on volume six, page 254, and it is, the, the title of it is The World's Need. And there's a, a little section, about three, four pages, something like that, maybe at the most, um, on the issue of the world's need. And so just some quotations from that. Christ saw the sickness, the sorrow, the want, and degradation of the multitudes that thronged his steps. To him were presented the needs and woes of humanity throughout the world. Among the high and the low, the most honored and the most degraded, he beheld souls who were longing for the very blessings he had come to bring, souls who needed only a knowledge of his grace to become subjects of his kingdom. That's all they needed. They were looking for it. They just needed a knowledge of his grace. Somebody needed to tell them, or perhaps better yet, show them. That's all they really needed. Now, what I want you to catch out of this is the, the people he's talking about, or Ellen White's talking about here, the people that Christ ministered to. The high, the low, the honored, the degraded. You know, that's, obviously that's both ends of, you know, like two spectrums, so to speak, or really one spectrum, whatever, but high, low, honor, degrade, everybody in between. When I scan through this little three-page section, or maybe four, or whatever, on the world's need, I, I, I just looked for the categories of people she was talking about and came up with this list. 
the neglected youth, the poor, the intemperate, we would call them alcoholics perhaps or drug users today, the honored ministers, statesmen, authors. And she spends more time than any other category on the wealthy because we're not that good at reaching the wealthy. And so she has quite a bit of, of counsel right there on, on, on how to deal with, with the wealthy. And the, um, the biggest problem that she identifies, and it, it's really interesting, what she says, when we, when we approach wealthy individuals, she says they're, they're in great danger. They're in, they're in peril, I think she uses that word, if I remember right. And the thing that makes them so vulnerable or, or so endangered is their wealth. So she has this counsel. She says, in the world today, where selfishness, greed, and oppression rule, Many of the Lord's true children are in need and affliction. In lowly, miserable places, surrounded with poverty, disease, and guilt, many are patiently bearing their own burden. Now, I, you know, I've kind of, I'm sorry, I've clicked, a, I've jumped tracks here on you. Um, it looks like I maybe missed one slide that I intended to get in. But what she says, and I go back to the issue of the wealthy, because this is obviously moving on to something else now. I'm sorry, I miss, miss missed that up. What she says is that when we approach the wealthy, we need to, in discreet, kind, compassionate ways, present them the opportunity to use their money to do good. They're some of them, at least, are looking for ways to do something good with their money. I mean, look at the you know Bill and Melinda Gates, right? Yeah, there are some who would question their motives, but, you know, nonetheless, they make this big foundation, they give away lots of money. They're, you know, let's, let's take it at face value for the moment and say they're looking for some, some way to do good. And, and she says, you know, it's, it's the job of Christians to present to them the privilege of sacrificial service. We tend to be, you know, we, we, we tend to find ourselves kind of tongue-tied in that regard sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, I've known, a, lived in the homes of, you know, actually some, some fairly wealthy people when I was younger. And, and, you know, it's kind of awkward in a sense, you know, because you don't want to be begging for their money. That's not polite. But a lot of times, let's just be honest, a lot of times if you know, Adventists have some good project going, they're actually kind of secretly hoping, you know, oh, maybe, maybe they'll give me you know, $100,000 and I can get something done, you know, or whatever. So it's a, it's, a, it's a delicate thing. It's a tricky thing. But we need to do that. And she says, she says it's, they, they won't really take us seriously until we do that. Because they know. I mean, they're the ones who have the money. And, and to whatever degree their conscience is working. I mean, I, I lived in the home of a guy who it was you know, a millionaire. 
And he laid awake at night, just looking at the ceiling, trying to figure out what was the right thing, the smart thing, the, the good stewardship. Of course, he was an Adventist, you know, but what do I do, Lord, with my money? You know, and it, it bugged him, and he hated it. He really did. He just... So anyhow, okay, but now back to the slide we have on the screen here, because this is a little bit different thought here. In the world today, where selfishness, greed, and oppression rule, many of the Lord's true children are in need and affliction, in lowly, miserable places, surrounded with poverty, disease, and guilt, many are patiently bearing their own burden of suffering and trying to comfort the hopeless and sin-stricken about them. Many of them are almost unknown to the churches or to the ministers, but they are the Lord's lights shining amid the darkness. For these, the Lord has a special care, and he calls upon his people to be his helping hand in relieving their wants. Wherever there is a church, special attention should be given to searching out this class and ministering to them. You know, there are people with good hearts out there. And they may not be doctrinally on the same page as we are. They may be from a different social strata. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. A lot of times, some of the very poorest folks in the community end up being some of the most generous with what they do have. Those people we're supposed to be finding. Statement goes on. Well, no. Yeah, okay. No, that's the end of that one, okay. So there's a section there on the world's need, and then the next immediate section following is, is entitled The Church's Need. This is what really struck me when I read these, these two passages. While the world needs sympathy, while it needs the prayers and assistance of God's people, while it needs to see Christ in the lives of his followers, the people of God are equally in need of opportunities that draw out their sympathies, give efficiency to their prayers, and develop in them a character like that of the divine pattern. It is to provide these opportunities that God has placed among us the poor, the unfortunate, the sick, and the suffering. And I don't know about you. I can't speak for any of you in your personal approach to life. But for the great majority of my life, I've pretty much tried to stay away from the poor, the unfortunate, the sick, and the suffering. They tend to be messy. It's, uh, and not just necessarily dirty type of messy, that may be true too, but messy in terms of involvements and complications and things. Remember years ago I was blundered into a situation that I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what I was getting into, and I probably, frankly, if I'd known, I probably wouldn't have, but it was, it was a great educational experience. I was teaching at a school, and uh, it was just a day school, but late in the afternoon, a, a guy came along that I knew was a friend of a church member in the area. And long story short, I took him into my classroom, or he came into the classroom, and I, we were talking and whatnot. And he had nowhere to stay for the night, and I told him he could stay there. 
And about that time, he started going through DTs. I'd never seen that before. It was really very unpleasant. So I spent the night with him in my classroom there. Gives you a new appreciation for the expression of demon alcohol. Um, convulsions and all sorts of strange things. Very messy. It's messy working with these people. The poor, the unfortunate, the sick, the suffering. It's, it's, it's a messy thing. Well, just a little bit further on in the same passage. It should be written upon the conscience as with a pen of iron upon a rock that he who disregards mercy, compassion, and righteousness. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting thing right there that she would list those three items together. Just, you know, I, I, I kind of get the impression there's a pretty close relationship between mercy, compassion, and righteousness. Right? But she goes on. He who neglects the poor who ignores the needs of suffering humanity, who is not kind and courteous, is so conducting himself that God cannot cooperate with him in the development of character. Ouch. You know, at various times and settings and circumstances, within Adventism, there's it's been quite a discussion of the development of character. You know, we should perfect a character. Yeah, you know, I believe in that. But statements like this really make me wonder exactly how I'm going to do that if I continue to dodge the messy aspects of ministry. The culture of the mind and heart is more easily accomplished when we feel such tender sympathy for others that we bestow our benefits and privileges to relieve their necessities. Benefits and privileges. We bestow our benefits and privileges. What are our benefits and privileges that we can bestow upon someone else? I don't know. I mean... The easiest thing to think of is money. I suppose you could say that money would come under the benefits category. Privileges? What privileges can I bestow on someone else? Maybe the privilege of having a home and a functional family? Yeah, a lot of kids growing up in very strange circumstances. Something about the stability of a family. Where I'm living up in British Columbia right now, <clears throat> we moved up there suddenly just over a year ago. My wife's parents' health kind of, at the time it seemed like it crashed suddenly, but anyhow. We were needed suddenly, so we sold out everything we had as much as we could in Wichita and packed up the whole household and moved into a 12 by 13 bedroom, which is challenging. There's a couple of sheds out in the out, out back where my library resides currently, uh, securely 
uh, packed away in cardboard boxes, which I find very annoying. <laughs> but, um, uh, but you know, it's been a great experience uh, moving up there. It's out in a rural district up in British Columbia. And um, we, we attend a little local church. And it's been kind of neat because I, I came in to the place, it, uh, the Lord really, the Lord works things out. It's, it's pretty remarkable, actually. Before I knew that I needed to move up to British Columbia, I'd been invited to speak at a, um, what they called a health share weekend in British Columbia. All the health department leaders or whatever, the, the health and temperance leaders, I'm not sure what the titles they're using these days, but you know, all the people from all the churches in the British Columbia Yukon Conference were coming together for this health share weekend and they asked me to, to, to come up there and speak. And so I said, sure, that'd be fun. And then a couple weeks later I found out, well, you know what, I'm, I'm moving to BC anyhow. So I was up there and, and um, shortly after we got moved in and settled more or less I spoke at this weekend uh, of meetings there um, at the, uh, the conference campground and whatnot. And, and it was kind of neat because it introduced me to a whole, you know, whole conference full of, of health people. And of course I was presenting on medical missionary work and such things. And so um, when I Came home after that, uh, back to my little church. It's a three-church district, a young pastor, three churches. And they said, you know, why don't we do some medical mission work here? I said, great. That's what I'm thinking to do. And so the Lord's put me in a, in a very unique situation where, you know, I, I moved in with my in-laws, and I, I'm not paying any rent. I'm not paying any utilities. I have, I have almost no expenses. I mean, car insurance and gasoline are the... You know, and I pay for the internet. And that's about the three things that we, we pay for. And, you know, the Lord worked it out very nicely so that uh, my income approximates my needs for expenses. And so, you know, it's cool. It's great. But I have some free time. And um, the church was interested and willing. And so we've started doing medical missionary work. Just started going out and trying to meet the people. There's a, there's a quite a large, in, in, in Canada, they don't, call them Native Americans, um, they refer to them as the First Nations, okay, the, the First Nations. And um, there's quite a large population of indigenous First Nation individuals there. Very, very tough circumstances, very tough circumstances for most of them. And so we've gotten to know some of the kids, we've gotten to know some of the um, some of the, actually the, I, I'm, I'm working with the nephew, he's in sixth grade, I'm working with the nephew of the chief of the local Indian band there, um, have some contact with them and whatnot, and a lot of opportunities, and I look at this and I say the culture of mind and heart, you know, bestow our benefits and privileges. What, do I, what am I supposed to be doing? If I'm, if I'm trying to develop this character that it talks about, I, I need to be merciful, compassionate, righteous. I cannot neglect the poor. I need to acknowledge and deal with the needs of suffering humanity. I need to be kind and courteous in order 
for God to cooperate in developing my character. Those are things that I have to do. Or I think it means that my character is going to end up doing whatever, becoming whatever I make it, which is probably going to be pretty rotten, just to be honest. Something about all our righteousness, right? Remember that line? Okay, well, let's go on. Getting and holding all that we can for ourselves tends to poverty of soul, but all the attributes of Christ await the reception of those who will do the very work that God has appointed them to do. All the attributes of Christ. I think that's tying back to that character thing. All the attributes of Christ are, are available if we do the work that God's appointed us to do. Well, going on, same section here, volume 6. Good works cost us a sacrifice, but it is in this very sacrifice that they provide discipline. These obligations bring us into conflict with natural feelings and propensities, and in fulfilling them we gain victory after victory over the objectionable traits of our characters. The warfare goes on, and thus we grow in grace. Thus we reflect the likeness of Christ and are prepared for place among the blessed in the kingdom of God. Okay, so... I think what it's saying is that I need to get used to sacrificing. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, where's the joy of the Lord type of thing, right? <laughs> Sacrifice does not sound like a lot of fun. But I like what it says next. Blessings both temporal and spiritual, will accompany those who impart to the needy that which they receive from the Master. What are temporal blessings? You know, it's stuff that works on a time base type of thing, you know? Temporal. This world. Not eternal. Temporal blessings. Okay. Well, that maybe sounds a little better. There's a verse in the Bible that I, I, I'm sure I read it sometime. I never paid any attention to it. But I ran into this from uh, a series of sermons that Dr. Kellogg gave. I've, I've, become, I've come to really like this. It's Proverbs 19:17, And since I'm into history, that's easy to remember because that's the year that World War I ended, right? Anyhow. But <laughs> that's how I remember it. But, anyhow, but the verse, look at this verse. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. And he, capital H, will pay back what he has given. You know, I think that's a promise. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. And God says, I'll pay you back. And Kellogg made a, a really kind of a cool case. He says, he says, you can have God in your debt. He owes you. Yeah. I mean, if I lend you 100 bucks, you owe me. And being merciful to the poor, being, what is it? Doesn't it have to be merciful? Pity. Who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and then God owes me. It's kind of an interesting thought. Well, going on, same section. Jesus worked a miracle to feed the 5,000, a tired, hungry multitude. He chose a pleasant place in which to accommodate the people and commanded them to sit down. They, then he took the five loaves and the two small fishes. 
No doubt many remarks were made as to the impossibility of satisfying 5,000 hungry men besides women and children from the scanty store. Yeah, that would have been fun, wouldn't it? You know, it's like, what's he doing? He's got a sack lunch. He's making everybody What's this all about? You know, that would have been fun. Don't you wish somebody was running video back then? You know, so many of these things I, I, I would have liked to see. I, I, this is totally dumb. But when Jesus grabs a fish and goes like this, you know, I mean, how did that really work? <laughs> you know, I mean, are, are we getting more backbone out of this deal or what? You know, I mean, how did that, I, I, would, I would like to see that on video. I really would. But it gets even weirder here in just a moment here. Um, ta, 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 scanty store, there we go. But Jesus gave thanks and placed the food in the hands of the disciples to be distributed. They gave to the multitude, notice this next line. I think this is the only place in Spirit Prophecy she includes this thought. The food increasing in their hands. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, I really, really want to see the video on this, okay? Um, let's go on. <laughs> and when the multitude had been fed, the disciples themselves sat down and ate with Christ of the heavenly imparted store. This is a precious lesson for every one of Christ's followers. You know, more and more I'm coming to the opinion that we can count on miracles when miracles are needed when we're sacrificing according to the Lord's principles. One of the very, very few lines that I remember from a sermon from years ago, and this was, the, I can tell you, it was the spring of 1978, an old Southern Adventist preacher. I, just, I still remember this line. He had this cute Southern accent. You know, he said, most of us don't know that God can take care of us because we're doing such a good job of it ourselves. <laughs> and that stuck with me. I didn't do anything about it, but it stayed in my memory. And I'm becoming more and more convinced of it. You know, this is a precious lesson for every one of Christ's followers. It's, it's, you know, the disciples didn't have any lunch either. <laughs> And Jesus didn't give it to them to eat. He said, here, give it to these guys. Yeah. There's 50 people sitting down over there. There's 100 over here. Go feed them. And you get some at the end. You're good. Going on. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Our church members are greatly in need of a knowledge of practical godliness. They need to practice self-denial and self-sacrifice. They need to give evidence to the world that they are Christ-like. Therefore, the work that Christ requires of them is not to be done by proxy, placing on some committee or some institution the burden that they themselves should bear. You know, I, I've, I've come to, to covet, and I'm, I'm gaining some slowly, you know. I'll just be honest. I, I, I preach much better than I live. But I'm, I'm gaining slowly some street-level experience of actually working with people. I want to learn how to do that. I want to, you know, I've got a lot to learn. I'm, I'm really playing catch-up on my theory. It's not a committee's job. It's my job. It might be your job, too. 
They are to become Christ-like in character by giving of their means and time, their sympathy, their personal effort to help the sick, to comfort the sorrowing, to relieve the poor, to encourage the desponding, to enlighten souls in darkness, to point sinners to Christ, to bring home to hearts the obligation of God's law. Still in the same section from the testimonies. People are watching and weighing those who claim to believe the special truths for this time. They are watching to see wherein their life and conduct represent Christ. By humbly and earnestly engaging in the work of doing good to all, God's people will exert an influence that will tell in every town and city where the truth has entered. If all who know the truth will take hold of this work as opportunities are presented day by day, doing little acts of love in the neighborhood where they live, Christ will be manifest to their neighbors. That's interesting. It's not complicated. Little acts of love. The gospel will be revealed as a living power and not as cunningly devised fables or idle speculations. It will be revealed as a reality, not the result of imagination or enthusiasm. This will be of more consequence than sermons or professions or creeds. I'm convinced that to a degree how can I put this? I'll, I'll use an illustration. You know, one of the things that, that if, if you pay attention to history and military history and such things, one of the things that the last several decades has, has taught us is that you cannot win a war without boots on the ground, right? You know, there's talk right now, boots on the ground. Are we going to put boots on the ground? Oh, no, we're going to have other people's boots on the ground. And I'll just be honest, I think that's stupid because uh, every experience of trying that has been a failure. But, you know, I, I think sometimes as Adventists, we've been doing the same thing. We've been trying to win the war with the Air Force, you know? Three angels flying in the midst of heaven. That's good. I like the three angels. Not opposed to the three angels. But, you know, I think we need an army of privates down there slogging it out in the mud and the blood, too. Let's go on. Satan is playing the game of life for every soul. He knows that practical sympathy is a test of the purity and unselfishness of the heart. And he will make every possible effort to close our hearts to the needs of others that we may finally be unmoved by the sight of suffering. You know, I think that may be why he invented the evening news. You know? You watch the news, and you know, somebody's having a famine, and they're dying over there, and you sit there and you watch it, and what do you do about it? Well, there's nothing you can do about it. No, and then they, you know, they have a commercial break, and then they talk about some other tragedy going on. There's nothing you can do about that either. And another commercial break, you know, a little something for... Coke or somebody, you know. And then you watch some more bad news, you know. And there's nothing you can do about it anyway. You just sit there and pat yourself on the back that you're informed. That's, that's cool. Maybe that's good. He, that's Satan, will bring in many things to prevent the expression of love and sympathy. It's thus that he ruined Judas. Judas was constantly planning to benefit self. 
In this, he represents a large class of professed Christians of today. Therefore, we need to study his case. We are as near to Christ as he was. It's an interesting statement. We are as near to Christ as Judas was. Yet if, as with Judas, association with Christ does not make us one with him, if it does not cultivate within our hearts a sincere sympathy for those for whom Christ gave his life, we're in the same danger as was Judas of being outside of Christ, the sport of Satan's temptations. Continuing right along, same section. I cannot too strongly urge all our church members, all who are true missionaries, all who believe the third angel's message, all who turn away their feet from the Sabbath, to consider the message of the 58th chapter of Isaiah. The work of beneficence, that's a fancy word, just means kindness, right? The work of beneficence enjoined in this chapter is the work, the work, not, I mean, she didn't say a part of the work or an aspect of the work or anything else. She says it's the work that God requires his people to do at this time. It is a work of his own appointment. This is the ministry which God's people are to carry forward at this time. This ministry rightly performed will bring rich blessings to the church. Well, Isaiah 58, you know, you're familiar with that. Cry aloud, spare not. That's how it starts. Because the whole batch of people, they're saying, you know, this is, this is really wrong. Because, you know, why have we fasted, God? And you're not paying any attention. It's, it's really your fault, God. We're doing all the right stuff. And you're not really, you know, you're not on the ball. Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no interest? You know, it's your problem, God. What's up? What's, what's, what's with that? And he turns around and he says, you know, I don't think that's my problem, really. He says, do you call this a fast? A day to you know, bow the head like a bulrush and spread sackcloth. And that's a fast? Hello? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Undo the heavy burdens. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. It's not to do your bread to your hunger. To bring the poor who are cast out to your house. When you see the naked that you cover him. Hide not yourself from your own flesh. That's Isaiah 58. Well, I've clicked the button. Have I clicked it twice or just once? Okay, just once. There we go. As believers in Christ, we need greater faith. We need to be more fervent in prayer. Many wonder why their prayers are so lifeless, their faith so feeble and wavering, their Christian experience so dark and uncertain. Have we not fasted, they say, and walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, Christ has shown how this condition of things may be changed. He says... Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness under the heavy burdens? Let the oppressed go free. I already quoted this. Is it not to deal the bread to the hungry and to bring the poor who cast out to your house when you see the naked that you cover him? Hide not yourself from your own flesh. This is the recipe that Christ has prescribed for the faint-hearted, doubting, trembling soul. Let the sorrowful ones who walk mournfully before the Lord arise and help someone who needs help. I, I don't have it, so I won't play it for you right now, but go to YouTube sometime and, or, or just Google first world problems. Have any of you seen that little video clip? It's hilarious. It's, 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 it's the first, the opening scene. It's, it's only about two, three minutes long, something like that. The opening scene is 
is some little girl, I think she's probably maybe in the Philippines or something like this. And she's obviously way out in a rural district and you can see a not so fancy thatched roof, kind of a hut thing behind her. And she stands there and she says, I hate it when I forget the name of my maid or something like that. And there's another one where a little guy in, a, in a raggedy clothes and, and a, you know, a, probably in Africa, you know, and he says, I hate it when the Wi-Fi signal's not strong enough to reach the other end of the house. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a 10-foot wide, one, you know, a single-room hut behind him type of thing. And they just go through it. I don't know how they got these kids to say this, and some of them don't say it in English, you know, why not? But it makes you think, you know. And then at the end, it just says, first world problems aren't problems. <laughs> they aren't problems, you know. Let the sorrowful ones who walk mournfully before the Lord arise and help someone who really needs help. We are to put every faculty to the stretch in order to bring saving truths to the attention of suffering human beings. This must be done in connection with the work of healing the sick. That's intriguing. Yeah, Loma Linda has something of a reputation for having an interest in medical work. What I'm talking about here must be done. And what, right here, it's talking about evangelism, right? To bring saving truths to the attention of suffering human beings. This must be done as, as medical missionary work, you know, in connection with the work of healing the sick. We've we got to do that. Then, and I suspect only then, the cause of truth will stand before the world in the strength which God, which God designs it to have. Through the influence of sanctified workers, the truth will be magnified. But it seems to only, from that statement, it seems to really only happen when we're doing it in connection with the work of healing people. Practical, messy stuff going on. Uh, let's see something here. Okay, that title is wrong on that one. Yeah, okay. To those who've been engaged in this work, and she's writing here the whole section. This is, this is one that does come from a little different place, I think. She's writing to the, the medical missionary workers, the folks who are working in the cities and whatnot. She says, to those who've been engaged in this work, I would say continue to work with tact and ability. Arouse your associates to work under some name whereby they may be organized to cooperate in harmonious action. Get the young men and women in the churches to work. Combine medical missionary work with the proclamation of the third angel's message. Make regular organized efforts to lift the church members out of the dead level in which they have been for years. Now, I just want to you know, draw your attention to a couple of quick things here. You know. Arouse your associates to work under some name whereby they may be organized to cooperate in harmonious action. Well, you know, you guys are like, boom, you're light years ahead. You've already got a name. Yeah? What's wrong with Advent Hope? Yeah? Do it. Just do it. Heard that someplace. Combine medical mission work with proclamation of the message. Make regular organized efforts to 
probably for ourselves, <laughs> lift ourselves out of the dead level in which we've been for years. Statement goes on. Send out into the churches workers who will live the principles of health reform. Let those be sent who can see the necessity of self-denial and appetite, or they will be a snare to the church. That doesn't sound like a real plus. See if the breath of life will not then come into our churches. A new element needs to be brought into the work. A new element needs to be brought into the work. There's one closing sentence on this quotation right here. It's kind of scary. It says, God's people must realize their great need and peril and take up the work that lies nearest them. This is all in this section on the church's need. The church, God's people, are needy and in peril. One other biblical motif that Ellen White touches in this passage is the Laodicean message. You know, and sometimes I have a keen grasp of the obvious, and sometimes I'm about as sharp as a bowling ball. But I'm beginning to suspect that that whole thing about being rich and increased with goods, I'm starting to think it actually has something to do with being rich and increased with goods. Just thinking that. And in my life, that's not been an asset. And in the last few years, the Lord's been giving me an opportunity to, to live without being rich and increased with goods. And, and you know what? He's kept me going fine. It's been kind of neat. Well, let's go on. A few more slides. There are human beings of low tendencies, but they have some most excellent traits of character, and they long for help, for strength. And the voice of God through his servants, who are willing to minister, imparts encouragement and strength so that they will venture to lay hold upon the help presented to them. Through human instrumentalities, they are enabled immediately to cooperate with divine power. Immediately? That's really interesting. But men who profess to know God are asleep Doing nothing. Those who flatter themselves that they are the children of God are yet indifferent to perishing souls around them. Ignorant, you may say, they are. Talk about the people that need help, right? Just ignorant people. They're, they're dumb. Yes. And so would you be if you had been in their place. But if they are ignorant, they need enlightenment. They need the very information their brethren can impart to them of the way of life. The church ought to have taken up this work in every conference. And if the powers of thought, which have been so fully occupied in devising plans which cannot succeed, and which have not the endorsement of heaven, had been put into devising plans to carry out the very work the Lord has been calling them to do in reaching the people where they are, the work would have been borne by many instead of by the few. You know, and I, I, I really am 
more and more. I'm, I'm believing this. That we've spent a huge amount of time, effort, and money on, on great big plans that really the bottom line appeal of them is to institutionalize what we should be doing as individuals. We're going to do a great work. But I don't want to have to do it myself. I want to find something that's really going to, really going to make a splash. Well, you don't have to make a splash. Make a little splash. You know? Just wiggle your toes in the water by yourself for a while. Going on, this work is the work the churches have left undone. And they cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities, in highways, and in hedges. Then, angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities, and a religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessities of suffering human beings who are in physical, mental, and moral need. This is the kind of work the whole of our churches are bound to do under covenant relation to God. They are to love God supremely and their neighbor as themselves. So what's a covenant? What's a, what's a synonym for covenant? I heard somebody say something. An agreement? A contract? Okay. So if I'm bound by a contract to do thus and such, and I just decide I'm not going to do thus and such, what do you suppose happens to the contract? It's like, I'm going to buy a car from you. I'll buy Arden's car. Arden, you must have a nice car. I'll pay you $15,000. Would you please give me the key? I, yeah, but Dave, you didn't give me the $15,000 yet. I, you know, that's a, a minor detail. You know, just give me the key. You know, we signed a contract. We are bound under covenant relation to God to do this kind of work. Going on. There are some who withhold themselves from their fellow men and shut themselves within themselves, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is made void by their practice. Their words go as far as expressions of warmth, but the poor are not clothed, nor fed, nor warmed, nor taught, nor given personal labor. These indolent, slothful servants are abundant, but they say and do not. They themselves are destitute of hope, faith, and love, and they are not helped by the gospel because they are not doers of the word. Some moral expressions are made and some frozen exhibitions are shown, but the bright beams of the Son of Righteousness do not penetrate the heart, brighten the life, and give vitality to their religious experience. You know, this is talking about me. I mean, I fit all of that. And the only thing I can say in my defense is I'm working slowly, trying to unfit myself from that. They do not know what service unselfish service to God means. Many consider that it will sometime be their duty, but it cannot be now. They contemplate it afar off as something we are not ready for when it should have been brought into their life at the very beginning of their religious experience. That's the first lesson. Yeah. That's the first lesson. I, I'm not sure if it's supposed to come before or after baptism, but it, it's it's right in that area. This is, the, this, this, is, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And nobody ever taught me this. Nobody ever... I mean, what? I went out caroling and, you know, in-gathering sometimes. That was kind of exciting. I always did it for the hot chocolate, to be honest. But, you know, 
Okay, I'm going to back up a screen uh, or two, and I want to just notice some particular verbiage here. Churches can't prosper unless they do this stuff. It's kind of interesting to me. She, she, she speaks of churches. It's not, it's not just individuals, and she, I think she already addressed individuals, but whole churches. They're not going to prosper. So, if God says, do this and you won't prosper, and I'm the devil, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to find a way to make it look like you're prospering when you're not doing this. That make sense? But if I'm not doing that, I'm not prospering. This church, any church that's not doing that, says they cannot prosper. And I think what that means is everything that I am inclined to look at and say, oh yes, we're prospering, we're rich and increased with goods. I think it's a lie. Churches, not just individuals, churches, and that religious system comment there, that's really intriguing to me. Yeah, you know, I'm not the most organized guy in the world. I, I rather heavily towards the other end of that particular spectrum. Systems are not what I, you know, I'm, I'm not a systems designer, right? I'm not a systems analyst. I'm pretty much a systems stress test kind of a guy, actually. <laughs> that's, that's, that's more where, I, I, you know, where my real talent comes in, okay? But this is not something that we do as lone wolves, even though we do have a personal responsibility. This is something, it, it takes, it takes a village, right? <laughs> now they use that title. It takes a church. It takes a church. To, to form a religious system that will relieve the necessities of suffering human beings. Oh, what a neat concept. Maybe that's what our churches ought to be doing. If all the members were, I suppose the churches would be too, probably. Yeah? Choose a name. Get your associates involved. I mean, send the young men and women Young men and young women, you know, I mean, you guys got tons of young men and young women around here. You guys are like really set up for this. Going on. Let those who would follow Christ fully come up to the work, even if it be over the heads of ministers and president. Talking conference president here. My point in saying this is that as a church, Yeah, you may not always get the support you want. It's not a reason to stop. <laughs> Let those who would follow Christ fully come up to the work, and this is, this is the work of medical mission work in context. That's what we're talking about here. Even if it be over the heads of ministers and president, those who in such a work as this, helping people, right? Those who say, I, will, I pray thee, have me excused, should beware, lest they receive their discharge for time and for eternity. 
Let Christians who love duty lift every ounce they can and then look to God for further strength. He will work through the efforts of thoroughgoing men and women and will do what they cannot do. New light and power will be given them as they use what they have. New fervor and zeal will stir the church as they see something accomplished. That makes sense to me. Uh, Ellen White has another, I didn't look this up, don't include it, but yeah, I, I, it's a nice comment. She says, nothing succeeds like success. <laughs> yeah. Make something happen, and then things will happen. Well, another statement here. This was written to a conference president. If you feel no interest in the work that is going forward, if you will not encourage medical missionary work in the churches, it will be done without your consent. For it is the work of God, and it must be done. My brethren and sisters, take your position on the Lord's side and be earnest, active, courageous co-workers with Christ, laboring with Him to seek and save the lost. To me, aside from the whole aspect of, of what I refer to as sanctified insubordination, okay, there's a time and a place for this, okay, not too many, not, not very many cases where Ellen White would advocate something like this. But aside from all that, you know, buried in the middle of this is a, a really amazing promise. All this stuff will be done. It's going to be done. I think the question is, is, is kind of simple, actually. Am I going to be involved? Or is somebody else going to finally get, get on the ball and, and do the job? Are you going to be involved? Or somebody else going to get on the ball and do the job? Is Advent Hope going to be involved? Or is somebody else going to do the job? Is Loma Linda going to be involved? Or somebody else do the job? It will be done. I don't know when. It will be done. I look at the world and I think it's time for something to be done. But I fear there's going to be a real strong temptation to try and cook up continually big things that shove our personal responsibility away from the individual believer away from the individual Christian, away from the small unit of the church, shove it on up. Let's, let's make that a North American division project. Maybe, why don't we make that a general conference project? You know, shove it up, shove it up, shove it up. I, I, I don't think that's what we need right now, actually. I think what we need is just a whole bunch of people, most of us, there'll be some exceptions, There'll be some guys flying the fighter jets. But you know what? I think most of us need to put on combat boots and get down there in the mud and the blood, get some boots on the ground, make our churches prosper, do the work so that God can cooperate with us in the development of character. Somebody besides myself needs to devise a religious system. Uh, that's, that's, uh, I'm sure that's my weakest point. 
<laughs> I'm not a systems guy. Somebody needs to do that. I'll, you know, I'll try to not destroy it. That's about the best I can, I can promise. I'll try not to destroy it if somebody gets a good system going. Maybe I could even be a part of it. Wouldn't that be cool? A religious system that will relieve the wants of suffering humanity. And coincidentally, take the gospel to the world and wrap this thing up so that we can, you know, kind of finally do what we're supposed to do and be done with it. That's what I'd like to see. I think that's what Christian service is all about. I like to hope. That's what Advent hope is all about. Take it and run with it. As individuals, but as a systemic group. You know, choose a name. You already got the name. You know, whereby your associates may be, I forget how it goes, you know, you've read the statement too, right? Choose a name. Start doing some work under that name. I think that's what Christian service is all about. It's a simple idea. It's kind of pointed. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for simple ideas because some of us are really simple-minded. And it's nice to know that you can work with dummies. We thank you for promises because it's nice to know that you stand behind your work and you guarantee it. It's nice to know that you want to uh, develop characters within us that will reflect your own. We pray that you would help us to take the simple means and methods and use them that will make it possible for you to cooperate in doing that. We just pray your blessing on our Christian service, that we might indeed be Christian in heart and hand, as well as name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.